Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we bring you updates from across the front lines, discuss Britain's naval support for Ukraine, and we analyse developments in Serbia as protesters march in Belgrade following a disputed snap election. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 19th of December, one year and 298 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and our guest is Ivana Stradner, a research fellow at the Foundation for Defence of Democracies, where her work focuses on Russian information security. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start uh, a few days ago, actually. So today's British MOD Defence Intelligence update says that last Thursday, Russia fired an AS-24 Killjoy hypersonic missile. Killjoy is the NATO codename for it fired a Killjoy missile at Ukraine the first time it had since since the summer, since back in August. So they said they had attacked the Starokostyantniv military base, which is kind of in the centre west of the country last Thursday. These missiles were part of, well, when Putin announced them in 2018, the Killjoy was one of six super weapons that had been earmarked to play a major role in Russia's future military doctrine. They have not been seen much of during the or since the start of the full-scale invasion. Obviously, only only kept back for high-value, well-defended targets. But it looks like it missed. So, MOD British MOD is saying many of its launches have likely missed their intended targets. While Ukraine has also succeeded in intercepting attacks by this supposedly undefeatable system. So we've not now they're not they're not out and out stating this thing missed last week but i think we would have heard if a, if a hypersonic missile had flown across ukraine and and hit its target so i think that one was either shot down or missed as well but uh, yeah they are not they're not um, they're used very sparingly so interesting that they that they and why they attacked that airbase so obviously continue to watch that now talking about air defenses russian air defenses reportedly shot down a ukrainian drone 
near Moscow this morning. So the city's mayor, Sergei Sobyanin, was on the on the airwaves talking about that this morning. No casualties reported at the debris site, which was in the Ondintsovo district. Ondintsovo? I don't know where the accent is there, sorry. But that's about 10 k southwest of the city centre. However, two of Moscow's airports, the Vnukovo, which is pretty close to that, um, to the crash site, and the Domodedovo, which is further south of the city, said they had restricted flights, which they often do during drone attacks. And then Russian news agencies also piled in, and they also reported that the nearby airports of Zhukovsky, which is a bit further southeast of Moscow city centre, and then Kaluga, that's much further out, about 100 k's out of the city, southwest again, probably on the drone's flight path. So Russian news agencies said that those two air- airports had also placed restrictions on takeoff and landings and, and aircraft activity. Now, Russian Defence Ministry said the Ukrainian unmanned aerial vehicle was destroyed by the Air Forces, sorry, Air Defence Forces on duty over the territory of the Odinsovo district of the Moscow region. I read that out because, somewhat amazingly, in the reports I've seen, there's no reference to this being a terrorist attack, which they normally do for any drones they attribute to Ukraine. So I think they've missed a trick there, because obviously they're not, on the, they're not on the same play page as what the Kremlin is normally saying. Now, back into Ukraine, Russia is said to have superiority in manpower and weaponry on three fronts. This is coming from Colonel General Alexander Sersky, the ground forces commander. He said Russian forces are advancing in Kubiansk, Liman and Bakhmut. So that's on the, in the east and the northeast. He says the situation is difficult. We have to fight in the face of enemy superiority in both weapons and personnel. He said, however, that Ukrainian forces were inflicting very heavy casualties uh, on the enemy. So there's very little territorial gain. I mean, we're talking metres, n- not kilometres, which, yes, does all add up. But again, it's the, the relative cost and the, the numbers that we think are fairly trustworthy are just horrific, up to a thousand a day uh, around Avdivka a couple of weeks ago. That's uh, from a Western official. Uh, and so it's just, I mean, it, it, it's, yeah, it's utterly, utterly immoral. Now, next one. Ukraine's increasing its production of drones as donation of Western artillery shells dwindles, or there are obviously big question marks here. So Ivan Havriluk, who's the Deputy Defence Minister, he said, as for artillery ammunition, this issue will keep popping up. Therefore, Ukraine's decided to address these challenges by creating a powerful UAV production system, UAV being unmanned or sometimes uninhabited aerial vehicles. That's the, the reference there. You'll also see uh, UAS, uninhabited air systems, but they're all, they're all drones. So Mr. Havriluk said, he said Ukraine would also work with Western arms companies to increase domestic production of NATO standard 155 mil shells. This is a long running issue about the production rates and when they can be, when they can be ramped up and, the, and just the sheer attrition of numbers, how often, how many shells are fired per day thought to be up in the I think in the in the single figure thousands at the moment it was much higher than that but because of the shortage on both sides they're down to single figure thousands of shells a day but I mean that is still utterly a colossal figure now General Zaluzny, uh, Valery Zaluzny, he's been talking about the recent personnel removals, the sackings of regional army recruitment chiefs. So President Zelensky sacked a load of recruitment chiefs recently on his part of his anti-corruption drive. General Zaluzny described them as professionals, which is a which is an odd an odd phrase to use in this context. But I wonder if some of that is, if not lost in translation, but maybe lost in context. But he said he's obviously U- Ukrainian army's commander in chief, the head of the head of the armed forces. He said they were professionals. They knew how to do it, but they're not working here anymore. 
He was speaking to Ukrainska Pravda. And I wonder if he means by professionals, he means they weren't reservists or part-time. I don't think he was making a comment on showing any great support for corruption. All regional recruitment chiefs were sacked by um, the president in August after an inquiry he'd launched had, had found that um, many had accepted bribes to exempt men from fighting or place them in units that are not, not near the front. However, you know, we've got to say there have been some tensions between uh, the president and General Zeluzny occasionally pop out into the open. That is going to happen, you know, if you're if you're staring at these people every day for nearly nearly two years in such a, a dynamic situation. There's going to be tensions every now and again. So maybe this is just another one of those. And then finally, for me, um, Putin has been accused of attempting to recruit cannon fodder for his war in Ukraine. This is Moldovan Prime Minister Dorin Retsian, who has made the remarks after uh, Putin has made it easier for citizens of Moldova, Belarus and Kazakhstan to become Russian citizens. Mr. Retsian condemned what he said was, quote, an attempt to recruit cannon fodder for this brutal and incomprehensible war launched by Russia in the neighbouring country of Ukraine. And this decree means that those citizens in Moldova, Belarus, Kazakhstan can now become Russian citizens by obtaining a permit and passing a test on Russian history. <laughs> I'll have to read that book. Previously, they also had to prove that they reside permanently in Russia. But clearly, as he's desperate for personnel, manpower for the front, that's no longer a requirement. And I'll take a little pause there, David. Thank you very much, Dom. Joe Barnes, let's come to you. You've been writing up quite a few well, non-EU stories are more about the front lines and the war. Um, can we start with your piece on a rather extraordinary vehicle that uh, has been spotted on the, on, in the, in, on, on the Russian side of the, the war? Um, tell us about what you saw, Joe. Yeah, so um, for our listeners, I recommend going onto the Telegraph website and searching for Russia mocked for rudimentary counter-drone wig. And essentially what this story is about is Russian forces attempts to hide a military vehicle from Ukrainian drones using what are essentially screens of straw threads that resemble hair. The only way, and you'll need to see the picture, but if you cast your mind back, depending on sort of your, your age, think of the Magic Roundabout's lovable dog, Dougal or the Dumb and Dumber van, which I think is called Mutt's Cut from memory. These hairy cars that look a bit like, well, the hairy car looks a bit like a dog and, yeah, the lovable dog. Yeah, so it's sort of incredible. What it is, it's a, what the, the initial picture is, is a, a Bukaka, uh, which is a 4 by 4 truck used by Russia's military. The vans have been used widely to supply forces at the front line, making them obvious targets for Ukrainian drones. So what this is and it's basically yeah like a sort of it could be like a giant hula skirt a giant wig i saw someone on twitter which actually made me laugh comparing it to michael fabricant the conservative mp so yeah i won't laugh but yeah and essentially this camouflage is designed to cover the vehicle's heat signature making it harder for thermal imaging cameras to basically get a sight of it but military experts do say that technique is somewhat flawed so speaking to a friend of the podcast earlier and about this, Hamish de Breton Gordon, he said that basically the outcome of trying to hide the heat signature of the car using this wig was wishful thinking. He said, this may dampen the thermal signature, but the windscreen makes it stand out like the dog at it is. He said it would easily be picked up by a $500 drone with even the most basic of night sights. Why is this, why is this important now? So what we're seeing is both Ukraine and Russia becoming more reliant on transporting troops and supplies to the front line under the cover of darkness 
to avoid basically this army of drones that are in the sky, whether they be sort of spotter drones, these first-person view drones that are being used to great effect at the moment. But again, what we are seeing is a lot of cheap Chinese-made night vision cameras being used by both sides now. They're being fitted to drones and basically, yeah, taking that sort of nighttime advantage away to move things around the battlefield. So Ukrainian troops have reported that Moscow's forces have started using these FPV drones with heat detection cameras to strike in the darkness, which overcomes one of Kyiv's main technological advantages. If you cast your mind back to a recent Ministry of Defence intelligence briefing, they said that basically because of a tradition of Russia not conducting drills in at night time and not basically practicing to fight in the winter, and also the fact that Ukraine has received a lot of night vision, Western sort of NATO standard night vision headsets from its Western allies, that Ukraine had the advantage in the darkness. But now that is slightly changing. So this chap called Serhii Stenenko, who is a Ukrainian military blogger, said recently, I want to go and show this video to the highest officers the russians are hitting our troops with night fpv including infantry by spring this could increase tenfold so they are basically this chap sir he is basically speaking to the effect that russia is continuously evolving its its sort of drone and fpv especially strategy and using them to quite good effects on the battlefield so and not to be to laugh at this one russian attempt at camouflage so it has been, Russia has always sort of lent these increasingly crude but creative attempts to conceal its vehicles and weapons from watchful Ukrainian forces. You remember images released earlier this year appeared to show fuel trucks designed, dis- disguised as commercial logging vehicles, basically with f- these logs that were built around the tank to basically fool Ukrainian forces into thinking it's not a fuel truck. It's a... Uh, it's a logger, but no. And they've also frequently deployed these like heat blankets in a bid to cover up various targets on the ground, um, often used by sort of like snipers and infantry units when they see drones above. They'll put these on and hopefully their heat signature will be covered up. But I think I should hand over to Dom because I know he's got a few things to say and obviously lots of expertise in this area. Well, I was just going to going to add to that. I mean, it's worth looking at the, the picture first of all. Thanks, Joe. The, I mean, it looks ridiculous. This truck is just sort of dressed in a... In the worst of Francis Durney's dressing gowns, basically. But in the British military, certainly the British army, under the, the lesson of why things are seen, we talk about the seven S's. So why, why do you see something? So picture a picture a scene, cam- um, a countryside scene or an urban environment, whatever. Just have an image in your mind right now. So what's going to make you pick out something from that scene? If you're looking over the countryside through a pair of binoculars or a tank gun sight or whatever, you know, why are you going to see something? And the the British Army says it's the seven S's, so shape, shine, shadow, surface, silhouette, spacing, and sudden movement. Okay, I'll very, very, very quickly run over this. So shape, you know, if it's not natural, the natural world doesn't really have many straight lines and right angles and all the rest of it. So something like like this truck that is, it's almost like a big Winnebago. I mean, it's, got just, it's quite long. It's very square at the front and the back. It's, it's just, there's lots of straight lines and right angles. So it's just, it's the wrong shape. You'd notice that. Your eye would pick that out. Shine. Yep, it does all right for that because it doesn't. It's not a very reflective surface because it's all this big hairy material. So shine, okay, fine. Shadow again. That's about where you position something in a tree line or how you're going to hide it in a in a built-up area so it doesn't cast a shadow. And you've got to think about where you're sighting your equipment through the day because guess what? You know the planet moves and so the sun wobbles around the sky and the shadow moves. So you've got to think about where you're sighting your bit. So fine for fun, for now, it ticks that box. We don't know where they put it. Surface. Now that's 
that's what that's kind of what you're wearing. That's the dis- disruptive material that you need to be wearing to break up the lines underneath so you don't see the shape of a human body the very distinctive edges between a head and the shoulders for example we all pick that out straight away you can you can see people in a crowd you can that's why you sometimes get these big sort of cardboard cutouts of, of police officers in shop windows might be because they're, they're very distinctive you see the person first of all before you see the uniform and then you realize it's just a lump of cardboard and on this one so the surface they are yeah okay it's all it's all sort of browny sort of downy dungy colored material but it's all the same it's very uniform so that might be perfect for when you're up against a browny downy tungy dungy backdrop but when you move it and you're then against some trees or against something it's just it's different so it's too uniform and so on surface it gets a big um you, you failed there silhouette again that's that means you don't be on the top of a hill and be silhouetted you travel down in the valleys so on and so forth spacing is how you how you move across an open area again there's very few if any regular shapes in nature so if you notice even if you're going slowly if if there's a 50 meter gap between the vehicles as you're moving along even if you're going really slowly the human eye will pick that out because it just looks odd and then finally sudden movement if something dashes that would naturally draw your attention now i don't think looking at this vehicle there's any danger of it ever achieving sudden movement so we can probably say they're all right on that front but for me when i looked at it it, it, it rang out straight away and this is we're not even talking thermal here the thermal signature because it looks like quite an old vehicle so it's probably got it's probably quite loud it's probably got quite a it's not very shielded thermally joe you were talking about the, the thermal blankets well i doubt the engine compartment is encased in a sort of thermal sleeve so i would have thought that would stick out thermally but i I guess the the British Army couldn't work out how to say thermal with an S at the front. But for me, shape and surface is why you would see that vehicle. It might also be where it was sighted and silhouetted in the shadow, but we don't know from the images we see. But for me, absolute fail. That vehicle is a a dog's breakfast, as I think, as as Hamish said. But just thought it was worth thinking about why things are seen. And that's that's still, still true today. I don't know if the lesson is still the seven S's. Maybe they've found a way to shoehorn a thermal signature maybe it's signature eight s's they might have signature if anybody knows please let me know because you need to get thermal in there somehow but for me that that vehicle is not camouflaged at all it's just a different way of sticking out to an attentive soldier scanning his arcs or her arcs thanks thank you very much for that Tom, I'm sure we'll see. Um, I'm sure we'll come back to this in the future. Joe, let's go back to you for one more story. The uh, you've been writing about Britain's aid to Ukraine, but in the naval sphere. Can you talk to us about this? Yeah, so I'd like to cast everyone's minds back to the NATO summit in Vilnius in July. Ukraine was sort of vying for NATO membership, but basically the American Germans said no and nine to that possibility. So the G7 countries came together and started butting their heads and was like, what can we do to basically offer Ukraine in terms of long-term security guarantees, assurances, in lieu of NATO membership? And everyone decided, or the G7 decided, so there's Britain, America, Canada, Italy, Germany, oh God, who else? Japan, maybe South Korea, I can't remember off the top of my head, decided to basically come together and put in place this negotiating framework that countries could use to negotiate long-term security assurances for Ukraine. And it looks like Britain is going to be first out of the blocks to sign that bilateral, one of those bilateral deals with Ukraine. And so I've been talking to people who managed to pick up some intel on this. And it looks like, or it is going to be the case, that Britain is going to use its naval expertise to help Ukraine control the Black Sea as part of a 10-year security pact. 
So it's going to be signed in the form of a memorandum of understanding, and it will pledge to keep Kyiv in the fight against Russia by providing continued military support focused on naval assets, as well as financial aid and intelligence sharing. But it also then looks at a post-hostilities world. It, it will The language in this document, which I've not actually seen the document, I've spoken to people about what's in it, and they, they say that it will contain promises of a post-war security guarantee to ward off Moscow should it consider attacking again. And that includes stepping up weapons deliveries again and reimposing sanctions on Moscow. So Britain's British officials have told their Ukrainian counterparts that the country will focus on bolstering Kyiv's maritime capabilities. So military leaders in this country have been incredibly impressed with Ukraine's performance in the Black Sea, and which has essentially forced the Russian Navy to end its blockade of the Black Sea, allowing Ukraine to open its own unprotected, or it's protected by Ukrainian forces, shipping route for grains and steel out of its southern ports, and also pushed the Russian Navy, the Black Sea Fleet, basically beyond Crimea and Sevastopol. So it's really like, it's done incredible amounts. So basically the UK wants to really build on a recent, what it called a maritime capability coalition alongside Norway, which is set to deliver two Royal Navy mine hunting ships to Ukraine. You'll probably remember Dom speaking about that recently because he wrote the piece with the website paper. But it won't be just that it won't just be maritime britain will also look to give continued land and air assets and help in that fight so yeah that's a bit on what britain's going to offer um joe can i just jump in before, before you move on may yeah. i just jump in with a question on that how helpful do you think these kind of developments are what i mean by that is it's all very well saying uh britain's going to help maritime dominate the black sea blah 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 all good but of course, this is all post-conflict. Now, do you think, uh, I mean, no one's talking about nudging, no one's openly talking about trying to get President Zelensky to sue for peace, where the lines are, negotiate now, et cetera, et cetera. But do you think the more, as you take the temperature of Brussels, do you think these kind of interventions almost give strength to the side of the argument that says, look, all these things are waiting for you just, just just if you sue for peace now with the lines as they are all these things can wait then we'll, we'll get on with the eu and nato membership and blah, blah 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 you know and i just wonder if if the more that folk might think that these are very helpful interventions but they might actually be starting to skew the narrative towards look for goodness sake if only there was peace you could, we could then get on with all this stuff and i wonder if it's actually becoming unhelpful just would be a welcome your view from brussels on that yeah, they're, 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 I think there there is a there is an element of that, and you you have to when you offer Ukraine something with the proviso, but we can't give it to you while you're in active hostilities. That does obviously open the the sort of the playbook and allow for discussion around should negotiations happen. But I think what is quite insistent from whether it be a British official or sort of other European officials in doing negotiating these documents. They just don't see negotiations possible at the moment because Vladimir Putin doesn't want to negotiate. He, they say he still has his maximalist goals. He won't basically, like, you, it takes two to tango, they say. And so even if Zelensky goes, oh, yeah, let's, we've got enough on the table which we believe we can guarantee our future and be prosper, prosperous, etc. But he then needs Russia to play ball as well. And we've got to remember that Vladimir Putin is a bloke who essentially attacked Ukraine 
because he saw it veering away from that sort of status of a former Soviet country and trying to be European, trying to be transatlanticist. So he's clearly not going to come to the negotiating table while Ukraine has a series of offers to basically become a NATO member, to become an EU member, to have a NATO standard military, um, etc. So that's but then what we could talk about as well on the flip side of that is are these memorandums of understanding being negotiated by the UK, by the EU, by around 30 different countries around the world, are they as good as NATO membership? No, because they don't contain these sort of mutual defence packages like NATO's Article 5, that sort of one for all and all for one mentality that promises to go to the aid of any country attacked by another or another actor. In some cases, the only time Article 5 has been triggered was after 9-11. That was a terrorist organisation rather than the country. But yeah, so it's it's interesting to think along those lines. So yes, it could create an atmosphere where negotiations are more viable, but let's remember Vladimir Putin probably isn't going to negotiate when he knows that at the other end of this is NATO membership. It is more tanks, more artillery, more naval expertise for Ukraine. So yeah, I, I, I don't know if you agree with that or you think that's the right assessment, but yeah, that's my reading of it. Yeah, I think it's entirely fair. And obviously, nobody knows. But I just wonder if if this put it in a different political context, maybe in a, in a changed political landscape in the US, for example, if the more there are these, they're not guarantees, but the more there are these bilateral defence arrangements, that's an easier sell for a politician explaining it to a a confused, worried, maybe slightly detached public to say, well, look, there's all this other stuff. These are all good things. You know, you might find the public opinion going, yeah, actually, that's, that's all right. There's a load of stuff that they could do if only they if only they negotiate now. So, yeah, on the face of it, absolutely no no negotiation now, no, no desire to. But I just wonder if other people will start to use this for their own ends unless they are, unless this has to some sort of starts some kind of momentum. And I'll talk about, I've actually done some research that I've done. I've got something for my final thoughts. I'm not going to, not going to pop my cherries just yet. I want to save that for the end. But yes, I think if this adds to the momentum, good. But if it's left alone, other people will use it for their own political devices. Yeah. And I I think, but actually what's important to look at when we're, we're looking at this British offer and it's a a 10-year offer of support and it will have probably have clauses to roll over again and change it in the future but it, it is essentially a twin track it's covering and the idea of keeping ukraine in the fight against russia now but it is also then looking at a post-hostilities world and looking at what they can do what britain can do what other con- then other countries all no doubt have their own ideas to basically ward off another attack by moscow but as i was researching this piece speaking to various sources i I managed to also get a glimpse at what the EU is going to offer in its own security package. And the EU is looking at a nine-point plan that, firstly, it promises key further weapons deliveries, and that's part of a well-publicised €20 billion package for the next four years. Um, Again, something that we know and is sort of out there anyway, the EU is going to promise to enhance cooperation between European and Ukrainian defence industries. That going back is the idea that Ukraine wants to be able to manufacture weapons in its own country. It wants to have its own supply of 155, its own supply of sort of artillery, howitzers, um, tank ammunition, you you name it. It will continue the EU's training programme, as will the UK's expectedly. Um, Again, more intelligence sharing and satellite imagery sharing. But then there's also some other sort of caveats, because all of these offers to Ukraine come in caveats of looking at a post-war world where a well-armed 
Ukraine that is known for being once a corrupt country, that Zelensky's government are really trying to crack down on that. So there's some caveats and some reforms that come alongside that. So the EU in its post-war effort would um, send an advisory mission to Ukraine to basically prevent small arms illegally seeping out of the country. So arms traffickers taking advantage of the amount of guns and small weaponry that could be used by terrorists or fall into the wrong hands, other criminals, basically help track and close down that market. They're going to commit to various demining efforts once the war draws to an end. I think Ukraine is probably the most heavily mined country in the world now because of what has happened from Russia. And the Ukrainians also do that, but not to the same extent. And then, as I said, Ukraine has also promised to its international partners, it will reform military transparency, modernise its military. So a lot of this is all about turning Ukraine into a NATO interoperable force. So basically making sure it is ready to fight inside NATO when the time comes. And then also various uh, implementation of law enforcement, judicial and anti-corruption measures, as I mentioned. So I will leave it there. Well, thank you very much, Joe and Dom, for all of that. Uh, Let's come back to any final updates you may have at at the end of the podcast. But let's go now to our guest, Ivana Stradner. Ivana, thank you so much for joining us from the east coast of the US. And we've brought you on because we want to hear your thoughts about the Serbian SNAP elections. These are the SNAP parliamentary elections. Can you tell us about these elections? Why were they called? Who are the main characters? And what's the outcome so far? Certainly. Good morning. And thank you very much for inviting me to your podcast. Usually, you know, I talk about Russian information warfare, but this time I cannot think of a more important subject in the Balkans than to talk about elections that happened on December 17, when Serbia had parliamentary and local elections. And just a fast, uh, fast move forward is that yesterday thousands of people already gathered in front of the state election commission headquarters, basically protesting against current uh, government, chanting uh, that they are uh, thieves and asking current Serbian President Vucic to leave. And they complain about fraud in uh, Belgrade's in local elections. President Aleksandar Vucic, he immediately claimed victory in SNAP parliamentary elections, uh, basically emphasizing that his party is heading for an absolute majority. And that really didn't come as a surprise because he fully controls the media space and he has been in power for since 2012. His campaign was basically Alexander Vucic, you know, Serbia must stop. So just a brief background that he was a minister of information during Milosevic government. And and then in 2012, he decided to change a little bit his approach, selling the West a story that he wants to actually bring Serbia towards the European Union. And he has been balancing between East and West, trying to appease both Russia and China, but also the West. As soon as he came to power, he destroyed pro-Western opposition and he strengthened the far-right groups, which was exactly something we saw during these elections as a result. So basically, he positioned himself somewhere in the center so he could look like the only viable option for the West. But the real question is, like, why elections now? And why do snap elections? Well, to strengthen his power, because he has had three main challenges 
over the past few uh, months. Actually, the first one that Serbia had two mass shootings that triggered massive protests for for months. And those mass shootings in May, they sparked uh, a huge opposition gathered against, against Vucic during those attacks. 19 people were killed, including 10 at a local school in in, in Belgrade. During those massive protests, an interesting thing was that immediately President Vucic accused the West of organizing uh, color revolution and Maidan. It got like a full support also from from Russian media. And that's something that truly scared him. However, during the summertime, those such protests were dispersed and um, they were not uh, uh, very active anymore. But people were also dissatisfied with high inflation and corruption that is happening in Serbia. And three, and in my view, this was truly the trigger for organizing elections, that in September there was an escalation in Kosovo uh, during Bansk incident that was described as a terrorist attack. Uh, when Serbia tried to truly open a new front, but it was unsuccessful. And as I said, it was described as a terrorist attack. In the West, actually, even the West has been, to some extent, supporting President Vucic, or if I may say, tolerating some of the officials. That was the first moment after many years that they were that they had like a very strong stance against his, his actions in Kosovo. And he literally has been trying to use those elections also to strengthen his power, but also to use this as a bargaining chip against the West. So I'm absolutely not surprised to see those elections. I'm also not surprised to see some irregularities that were reported by election uh, monitors and independent media. For example, they claimed that ethnic Serbs from neighboring Bosnia, they were voting at a sports hall in Belgrade. There was not an official polling. Then you have observers basically claiming the highest concerns over the cases of organized transfer of what they call illegal voters from other countries to Belgrade. I also actually was not surprised by the statement coming from the OSCE, Patka, the leader of the OSCE Observer Mission. He said that parliamentary elections, though technically well-administered and offering voters a choice of political alternatives, were dominated by the decisive involvement of the president, which together with the ruling party's systematic advantages created unjust conditions. I can go on and on explaining all the reasons why those elections were basically challenged by numerous observers. Even the German Foreign Office put forward, in my view, uh, uh, a very strong argument in words. We'll see what will happen when it comes to following through those words. They claim that Serbia has voted, but OSC reports misuse of public resources, voter intimidation in cases of vote buying. This is unacceptable for a country with, with EU candidate status. Even though it's early morning in Washington, D.C., I checked the news. I haven't seen any other similar statements coming from the West. I only saw statements coming from Venezuela, Orban already congratulated Serbian president and China. Meanwhile, Russian media is in full force amplifying messages that this is uh, the Maidan scenario, that the West, especially the United States, they are organizing this to overthrow the government. Those messages are actually also not a surprise because 
a week ago, uh, Russian military review, they already put forward an argument that there would be a massive, there would be massive protests and, and, and the West will try to overthrow the government. This is, again, you know, nothing new because both Serbia and Russia have this paranoia about color revolutions. As a matter of fact, even Petrushev and back then, Minister Vulin, he met, you know, and they pledged together to fight color revolutions. So this really comes as no surprise. This is a typical scenario coming from coming from Moscow. One other interesting thing that I also noticed is that the current government has has been very nationalistic and populist in their sense. And they have been trying to create something that is called the Serbian world. Some in the West believe that this is just a cheap rhetoric, that this is, you know, just which is rhetoric for a domestic audience. But if you actually see who was at the stage to support Vucic, such as Milorad Dodik and other politicians from, from nearby Montenegro, this really tells you all you need to know about their true intentions in, 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 in the long run. I do believe that the current government is just trying to buy time. Now, when it comes to the opposition, there is no strong pro-Western, pro-NATO opposition. And I'm not surprised because nationalistic narratives have been created for more than a decade with very far-right messages. President Vucic fully controls the information space with his propaganda and uh, with his uh, anti-Western narratives. Given, you know, that here I'm talking with Telegraph just to let you know that propaganda already accused multiple times MI6 and the British government of trying to open a new front in Kosovo and to uh, against Russia and to use that against Serbia. So all those narratives, well, for many of us in this podcast, we can laugh about them. They actually are significant in the information space in, in, in the country. And with such a narrative, it's very, very, I'm, I'm not surprised that we do not have over there pro-Western, pro-NATO opposition. So this is why they call it more central-left opposition. But they're, they're not very well organized as of today. When people ask me about the outcome of protests, nobody knows. I see an incredible energy in Belgrade, especially among the youth. I haven't seen something like that in the past. Uh, but let's also not forget that it took years and years also to overthrow Milosevic. Um, and it was also uh, nature intervention that was a catalyst for overthrowing him. Right now, I do not see... Uh, Western support in that sense to in, in, in that sense in Serbia, but I do see a lot of young people there with incredible energy to try, you know, to make a better future for, for themselves. I was, as I said, very surprised to see German Foreign Office in their statement. And I truly hope that other Western leaders will follow with similar messages. But this is, you know, what it is that I see as of today. Maybe, you know, next time when we talk, things might change, things might not change, we shall see. But definitely there will be a moment when President Vucic will have to give up on his power. And I have no doubt that that will be a, not a very pleasant experience and that might not actually end in a peaceful resolution. Ivana, thank you so much for explaining all of that to us. Just one question from me, and I know Dom has a few as well, but could you put 
everything that's happening in Serbia at the moment into a bit of regional context and also in the context of the war in Ukraine. What does this mean for Russia and Ukraine that this is happening uh, in the Balkans? So, as I mentioned multiple times, and I remember also in your podcast, that Putin will not stop at Ukraine. We have to understand Putin's type of war through Moscow. Moscow's lenses. We cannot think through our Western lenses. He does not need to roll on tanks in Moldova or in Armenia and Azerbaijan conflict or in the Balkans. He already has when it comes to the when it comes to the Balkans, his people, his proxies, his intelligence fully operational in the region. I do believe that one of Putin's goals is to challenge NATO. He cannot, as of today, challenge NATO militarily, let's say in Poland. But what he can do is to use NATO's weak links, and NATO's weakest links is indeed in the Western Balkans. North Macedonia and Montenegro recently joined NATO. Several months ago in Kosovo, where where NATO has peacekeeping mission, more than 30 NATO peacekeepers were injured. What did NATO do? Nothing, which was precisely what Putin and Vucic were hoping for. So as of today, I do see two specific weak links in the Western Balkans. One is Kosovo that I do believe will continue to escalate because on one side, Putin has his own goals, but also President Vucic has his own goals when it comes to Kosovo, always to escalate the crisis and then to de-escalate the crisis and then to use that as a bargaining chip against the West, positioning himself as a pillar of stability as a pillar of stability in the region. And the second weak link for the West in the Balkans is Bosnia and Milorad Dodik, who has been threatening with secession for years. Some, again, you know, in the West believe that this is all cheap talk and there are, you know, numerous details that we can certainly, you know, discuss. But he's a very strong ally of Vladimir Putin and he has Putin's backing. And all he also needs to do is to follow through on his uh, promise and just watch the West to do nothing over there. The last thing that, that the West needs right now is another conflict. Again, you know, when people think about the Balkans, they immediately think of the 90s and civil wars and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people dying. We live in a very different era. Uh, Putin can truly disrupt the West with a conflict just below the threshold of war, but still powerful enough to show that the West is a paper tiger. I applaud the United Kingdom for sending, for example, additional troops in Kosovo. But this is still, you know, not enough. Because as I said, there are two parallel things going on. One side, what Putin has been trying to do, whether triggering similar similar conflicts between Armenia and Azerbaijan, or whether in in Moldova, or what's happening even right now in Latin America uh, with Maduro and his guest lighting about a potential conflict. So this is all part of the same playbook. I have to admit that today I'm more positive than I was, you know, last year because the West is paying now more attention to the region. As a matter of fact, um, NATO NATO Secretary General just recently visited the Balkans. And this is, you know, my assessment as of today when it comes to regional politics and security. When it comes to also regional politics, I can also, you know, certainly talk about uh, Montenegro 
and which is a NATO member state that unfortunately is turning and becoming leaning more towards towards Serbian world and Russia. And this was all a subtle strategy for years, and the role of the Serbian Orthodox Church played a tremendously important role over there, where actually, if you understand how Putin used the church in Ukraine, but polarizing basically the church, that's a very similar thing, you know, what happened in Montenegro between the Serbian Montenegrin Orthodox Church and how they catalyze more, more polarization. There were litie, which is like a, a religious protests in, in, in the country. So I have to admit, you know, the Balkans had a tremendously a huge opportunity after the end of Milosevic regime to truly align itself uh, with the Western values and become fully um, uh, part of the European Union um, and NATO. Uh, but due to appeasement and especially Merkel's foreign policy and Macron's uh, foreign policy for years, the Balkans is where it is, you know, today. And this was certainly an opportunity for both Russia and China to step in over there and to and to disrupt the region and to corrupt the region and to introduce themselves as a savior, you know, in, in, in the country. And my last point over there is, you know, when analysts talk about, for example, Russian involvement in the Balkans, all those activities are invisible. Again, Russia does truly not need to send tanks and jazz. That's not how they operate. They operate through paramilitary groups through uh, mafia, through gangs, through uh, sports groups, the way that they have been using culture and religion to saw more ethnic tensions in the region is truly mind-blowing. But uh, again, it's a very similar playbook that Putin has used in Moldova or elsewhere in his neighborhood. So having said that, with Russia's war in, in Ukraine, all Putin truly wants right now is the West to become tired of war and the West to stop supporting Ukraine. And no surprise while we see more and more threats with opening new fronts and the Balkans is also part of that playbook. Ivana, thanks so much for joining us today. Dom here. Just got a, a question if I, if I may. I visited Serbia with the Defence Secretary, well, the then Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, just before the start of the full-scale invasion in an, an attempt to try and win them over to to help and I don't know if it works I don't know how 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 influential he was but you know it's very clear that the 1999 NATO Serbia conflict is very still very real that they're parts of the Serbian Ministry of Defense that are still bombed out that they've kept as bombed out buildings to remind well us visiting but also their own people that they you know they they had a war against NATO I just wonder what you thought of the um all this talk about it's all a color of revolution, it's a U.S. or Western plot. I mean, do you think this is all just a standard trolling to, to play into that narrative? Or the fact they've had to come out with this, do you think that actually shows that the regime is a little bit concerned and they need to come out on the attack? If they didn't, if they felt they were secure, then they obviously wouldn't need to. But I just wonder if it's just part of the, the DNA, they just have to tro- put all this stuff out there, or whether it's a sign of that they might actually be a little bit concerned Absolutely. Thank you so much, John, for your question. So first question about Serbian Ministry of Defense, you know, still keeping the building bombed over there. That's certainly, you know, if there is one thing that the Serbian government has been good at, it's psychological 
warfare. They truly know how to target their audience and how to target the far right groups. Meanwhile, I always like to make jokes, you know, but it's actually totally true. While all those politicians keep supporting Russia and keep supporting the far right nationalistic narratives, they love to send their kids to American and British schools. And they love to keep their money in the West. So this is truly, you know, the part of hypocrisy. Uh, But also it is the part of the fact that the West also didn't invest in creating free media space that would build a better pro-Western narrative. So that's something that I also want to want to emphasize. In terms of those color evolution narratives, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, you really just have to go back and to read Russia's information security strategy. The first one was, you know, made 23 years ago. It has a full obsession, you know, with Western color evolutions, et cetera. And this, a very similar thing is actually happening, you know, in Serbia because the current government, they firmly believe, you know, it was the CIA that overthrew Milosevic. And certainly, you know, they fear, um, they fear such narratives. And that's why they are pushing such narratives in the media. Vucic portraying himself as a victim. I mean, just a few weeks ago, even Vucic's propaganda put on a cover page that me, that my colleague and I, are working with NATO to, to overthrow him. This really tells you all you need to know how paranoid they are, even for some random researchers and academics like myself. But that particular message has two has two targets. One is certainly to show to the Serbs, you see, they're working against us. They want to overthrow our government. The West wants to occupy the country. Another narrative is the decadent West, you know, is bringing the decadent values in Serbia. But look, you know, Russia, they have traditional moral and spiritual values. They're in alignment with the Orthodox Christianity. And the second thing is, what you just done perfectly put, like, it's fear. Vucic knows very well that even though he has like a full uh, full media space and full media control, he has his people everywhere that his government is fragile. Russian war in Ukraine has changed, certainly changed, the 21st trajectory and, uh, and the world. And Vucic never, you know... Um, impose sanctions against Russia. He has been trying to balance between East and West, but that leverage that he had prior to the invasion is fading away, and he knows that. And this is precisely why since May consistently has been pushing the narrative that the West is trying to, to overthrow him and to and to conduct the color revolution. Like literally, there is a party show on Telegram channels every day pushing narratives about color revolutions. And this also has been triggered, you know, and has been written by Russian other propaganda, such as RT and Sputnik, that are freely operating Serbia. They get picked up by local media. So that's the narrative that he truly fears. And he fears, you know, people, and just like all dictators, they fear ideas. And I'll tell you again something. Yesterday, when I saw young people protesting against Vucic. I haven't seen that energy in a long time. And that's something that authoritarian regimes fear more than anything else. Ivana, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really great to hear your thoughts. And thank you for taking us through the events in the region and their implications. Let's move now to our final thoughts then. Dom or Joe, would you like to go first? 
Yeah, I'll jump in if I may. Thank you. So um, earlier we were talking about about the context that a lot of these things are landing and, and whether or not they build a narrative that um, that some might use to try and push Ukraine towards negotiations. And I note that today, Lord Cameron, David Cameron, Britain's former Prime Minister, now our, our Foreign Secretary, he's said that Britain will support Ukraine, this whole phrase that's coming out again and again, for as long as it takes. So he's in France. He's meeting his French counterpart, Catherine Colonna, for talks today in Paris. And he said... Britain and France have been staunch supporters of Ukraine and we will continue to be for as long as it takes. I have no doubt that we can make sure Putin loses and it is essential he does lose. Okay, so I think that's a welcome break from and an addition to the somewhat sterile and increasingly unhelpful as long as it takes. As long as it takes to do what? Well, here we've actually sort of nudged it on a little bit. He actually says it's essential Putin loses and his phrase... I have no doubt, blah, 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 we can make sure that happens. No, it's good. We just need to hear some more concrete ideas about what losing means. And if Lord Cameron has no doubts that we could all make that losing happen, when is the international community going to galvanise around somebody to make that happen? So I think a helpful contribution, if it just left it as the, the trite old as long as it takes, I think we'd be a bit bored. And I think that's starting to send a message. So he's nudged, nudged the dial a little bit, but more please from the international diplomats. Thanks. Thank you very much, Dom. Uh, with one eye on the time, very quickly, Joe and Ivana, Joe Barnes. Rather than the thought, I just want to relay some polling that's been done by the Kiev International Institute of Sociology, because there's been a lot of sort of speculation is is Zelensky under pressure? Should he hold elections? Well, obviously, that's an open question because martial law doesn't allow it. But looking at, is he supported in Ukraine? And this polling has found that President Zelensky remains the most trusted Ukrainian political figure. So Zelensky came in first with 77% of respondents saying he is a trustworthy figure. Serhii Petrula, who is a comedian, public figure and notable fundraiser, came in second place with 69%. And Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko came in third with 52%. You wouldn't remember Klitschko took a recent recent snipe at Zelensky, suggesting that he was sliding into uh, autocracy. So, yeah, interesting to see that Zelensky is still very much sort of, yeah, trusted. Uh, That is, though, down from 90% when the polling was last carried out by the Kiev Institute the International Institute of Sociology, when Zelensky got 90% trustworthy rank rating in May 2020, 2022, sorry. But yeah, so it seems that that Zelensky, while things are going in a slight downward trend, that is not uncommon the longer someone stays in power, he does seem to have a higher confidence in his public. So it's interesting to note the average approval, and this is according to the Kiev Independent, where I first read about the poll, our friends over there, the average approval of US presidents from 1938 to 2023 is only 53% of the most three recent presidents. Only Barack Obama received an average approval rating of more than 50%. So Zelensky at 77%, even though his counteroffensive has seemingly failed in the eyes of many people, yeah, he seems to be doing all right with the Ukrainian public. And I will stop there. Thanks for listening, folks. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you, Joe. Ivana, as our guest, would you like the very final thoughts? 
I think it's too early right now to make any prediction on foresee any results uh, when it comes to protests that are happening right now in Serbia. But as we're heading towards 2024, there is Russia not good at so far. Russia has been setting always informational conditions before they do something. And they already informed us in July that there would be an escalation in Kosovo in September, and indeed it happens. If you read carefully, Russian media right now, they are already announcing that 2024 would be quite eventful in the Western Balkans. So we should believe them. Uh, but before uh, we make any final assessment on that thought, it will definitely uh, be uh, uh, contingent on the outcome of protests and the elections in Serbia. So it's worth watching. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.